My name is Dan Ferguson. I direct the climate assessment for the Southwest program here at the University of Arizona. And we're starting a new podcast series where we uh, sit down with people for 20 minutes or so and talk about people who are thinkers or doers or both on issues around climate change, climate adaptation, climate variability, climate science. Our first special guest is Susie Moser, who's visiting for about a month here at the University of Arizona. Susie is uh, an independent scholar, and I'll let her tell us more about herself. Great. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks, Dan. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. I was thinking the first thing that we would start with is, because you are an independent scholar, Mm -hmm. I I have a problem when people ask me what I do for a living. I don't have a good answer to that question, because nobody really knows what my job title means in the world. I can only imagine you have this problem. So if someone asks you, hey, Susie, it's nice to meet you at this cocktail party. What do you do for a living? What do you say? Basically, I tell them that I'm really interested in change, social change, how people change, how they change, what they care about. And I do that in three different areas. One is how do we communicate about climate change in effective ways? And typically that involves a lot of changing of what people do. (laughs) I really care about adaptation, which is changing, adapting to the changing environmental conditions climate change being my my primary driver, but it's never just about climate change. And the last piece has to do with how do we connect science in a useful, effective way to practice policymaking, decision making, management, planning, whatever. And again, in that arena, there's a lot we need to do differently than we what we typically do. So I love to put them on the ends of a triangle. And what happened over the course of my career last 20 years is that that triangle has become smaller and smaller and smaller. In other words, the, you know, as soon as you talk about adaptation, you'll talk about how do you connect with science? How do you connect the science of adaptation to practitioners? As soon as you talk about that, you need to talk about communication. And you can start from any end of the triangle, but they're essentially the becoming point. a point. <laughs> so how did you get started in this? I should say you're an accomplished scholar. You have a very impressive publication record like a professor would have. Have you ever had an academic appointment? I very briefly was a visiting professor at Clark University, but it was basically just for one semester. My main academic appointment actually has been the National Center of Atmospheric Research in Boulder, which is not a university, but you know it's it functions essentially like an academic institution. So I did that for about five years. So that was immediately sort of around your, you did a PhD at Clark, and then you did a some post-doc. postdoctoral work at Harvard, and yep. then... And then I went to an NGO, the Union of Concerned Scientists, oh, which actually prizes itself of being all about making the connection between science and policy, which is why I wanted to, to do the job. You know, at, it's Harvard. We were sort of doing the dry run uh, in academia, and then I wanted to see how to actually do it. And it's probably been the most influential in terms of my career and understanding the role of science in policymaking and management. So you've chosen this path pretty intentionally. I would say you would be, you probably are recruited for academic jobs. You'd be easily hired as an academic researcher, but you have chosen this path. Well, I'll leave that to the (laughs) academics to decide whether I'm easily hireable. But I think what's true is that I've always chosen to be in places that to me, felt like they were trying to make a difference with, you know, that I will add the little wrinkle that I'm not a U.S. citizen and I needed a green card. And being at NCAR, which is not the hotbed for science policy connection, very good science, very good work. And in some small parts of NCAR, actually, they do work very much with practitioners. But overall, that's not their their strong suit. 
but it was a very important part of my career to, you know, where I did a lot of work on communication and on learning more about adaptation. So in that context, it's been very influential and important to be there. So this idea of change, the way you frame the three core things that you've been doing. So you have been actively publishing as a scholar. So that's one thing you do. Your daily job, part of your daily job is writing papers. Yeah. And getting sort of... Um, I, I do really, you know, except for teaching sort of at a university classroom, I do pretty much everything else that an academic does. Except, and here's where I was headed with this, is you're also, to my experience, working here in Arizona, and I work in the communities a fair bit around Arizona, at least in urban communities, people who are wrestling with climate change planners, urban officials who have to deal with, you know, changing conditions and are trying to think about how to be proactive about it. You're a known quantity. So you're out in the real world too. So can you just tell us a little bit about that? Let me tell you one thing that really informs how I work. Interestingly enough, you know, the social sciences know a lot about how individuals change their behavior, change their minds. They know a lot about persuasion. They know a lot about organizational change, institutional change, policy change. They know a lot about all these things. Interestingly enough, we actually don't use a lot of that in our actual work. We don't apply it. What I would say, though, is in my work, I have actually tried to walk the talk. I've tried to actually use what we learn in the social sciences and then bring it to people. So, you know, in the communication arena, for example, I train people, which means I have to find ways to translate all this amazing academic knowledge that exists into usable information, into learnable skills, which is not a small challenge, but that's one way in which I do that. On the science policy connection, you know, first I studied people who made that connection and then I try to do it myself. So when I write a paper, you know, it's not enough to just have it out there. You have to actually bring it to them, to the places where they are. I find it most fascinating actually to be in this constant tension between studying people, studying how they do things, and then trying to practice it. And in the process, think about it, reflecting about it, and and learning again. Does it really work that way? So, you know, my practice essentially is the ground truthing of all the science. And the science is to, you know, study what people do. And so it goes back and forth. It's it's very hard to distinguish. And that doesn't mean, you know, that I'm telling people what to do. I'm respectful of, you know, who the decision maker is. But at least I'm giving them the tools and I'm using the tools to at least connect the science and practice in useful ways. So you have this different model. It's, I don't think it's completely unique, but it's different than a lot of people who are working in our world, who are, most of us are attached to universities or research labs in some way. So you, ha- you have this ability to be a change agent. You can study change, but you can also affect change in a way that you have a little more freedom than some of us do. I should have said at the beginning, you're a social scientist an active member of the climate science community, but you're on the social side of it. We know a lot about, let's just say, climate change. It's about climate change. We know about climate change. We know this, how this, a lot of how the system works. We have an okay idea about how it's changing to the future. A lot of that's not getting implemented in any kind of decision context. So what do you think some of the big barriers are for that? One of the things I would say, and I'll, I want to start there because it, it frames my answer to your question. When I first started in the early, mid-1990s to think about adaptation. That was really where I got my entry into this field. Um, There were probably, across the United States, a half a dozen 
maybe a dozen um, of people thinking about adaptation. Um, you know, there was some very, very esoteric um, uh, academic work on it and, you know, has been there for quite a while. But in terms of really thinking about adaptation to climate change in the real world, what does that mean? A half a dozen. Now it's thousands, thousands of people who proclaim to say they do something about adaptation or think about it, do research on it and in the real world, try to make decisions, as you said, in cities and, you know, tribal communities, uh, natural resource management, you name it. Really, 20, you know, years maybe, and we have now thousands of people who say they do that. Well, I can tell you from my observation, most of them are reinventing the wheel of stuff that, you know, was known about these challenges in at least some rudimentary way in the 1990s. So that's a lot of re reinventing over the wheel, a lot of energy in my mind that is wasted. And one of the big reasons for that is that all that scholarship that has been done in the meantime has not been translated into the professional training of planners, into the professional training of every engineer, every ecologist out there managing a reserve. It's pretty disheartening actually to see what a huge gap we have and what a waste of time at a time when, you know, I always think of this as the luxury end of, you know, of climate change in, in that the change is still relatively small, but it's, you know, accelerating, warming is accelerating, you know, we might be crossing tipping points, things might, you know, speed up in important ways. So and we're wasting time at the wrong time. Because yeah. we have the luxury of it right now. Well, and so now we're, you know, we ought to be really thinking hard and at a high quality in a very sophisticated manner about this issue already, while we still have the possibility to actually have the luxury to think. Right. I think it's going to be much harder to sit back when things get even tougher than they already are. And, you know, I'm not trying to put down any one's hardship now. It's hard enough now, but it's going to get harder. And, you know, before we turn the ship around, if we manage to do that on climate change, it's going to be, you know, a long time. So we're going to be in for a very rough ride and, you know, we ought to be using this time a much better. So that's all preamble to then saying, what are the big barriers? Well, one of them is that, you know, most academics actually don't apply what they learn and have many institutional constraints, as you mentioned, in university settings to do that. I don't think it's impossible. Klimas is a great example of, you know, figuring out a format, a institutional arrangement in which people can make their science useful and, you know, connect with decision makers in the real world. So it's obviously possible. And we need to build the capacity to do that. We need to train the people who do it and then train them as trainers so that they can multiply the skills of how to do that. I mean, there is such desire to do that, actually. And, to you know, people go into graduate school because they want to do something in the in the world, make a better, you know, make a difference. And we need to train people to do that and multiply our capacities so that we don't waste time just making every mistake on the book. There's a there's an interesting sort of push-pull supply-demand, if you will, mm-hmm. scenario too, or a factor too, which is that at the beginning of your career, let's say the mid-90s, there was a real, there's a different political environment around climate change at that point in the real world, not in, not in, not in D.C. or in you know, national capitals, but it, across the world, towns and cities and pe- regular people, in terms of not seeing anything that seemed tangible, unless you happen to live in the Arctic, or there were specific places where it was real, it was much more tangible. 
But one of the things that's changed is that it's become a lot more tangible for a lot more people. So there's also a pull factor, I think, that's been happening, where at the time when this all first started, when Klimas starts, actually, is around that same time, there was a lot less questions to us about climate change. What's the science of climate change? More about drought and you know what we normally think about as climate. Um, so that's another factor in this, right, is that now we have... In, in sort of coarse terms, we have a constituency that we didn't have before. And we didn't get our act together. I mean, I take your point, because we didn't get our act together. Right. We, saw, we could have easily seen this. In fact, many people, including you, did see this coming. Um, Absolutely. I think that's, that's right, that, you know, there were several things that have changed. One is that, you know, there were far fewer people who, on the management side, on the policy side, who actually wanted to learn something and, you know, uh, wanted to get the scientific input, the the absolute leaders. But then again, that's how all social change happens. You know, it's not like the masses just show up one day. It's always a few innovators, and then they bring on the next round of, you know, what we call early adopters. So people who sort of learn from them, and we basically need to be aware of it, that there will be an even greater demand uh, going forward. So the question arises, how do we meet that that demand, that growing demand? There's a degree of sophistication that changes I've seen when you work with decision makers. At first, they're fairly new to this. They don't fully understand what the issues are, what the options are. And even they don't know how to work with a scientist. You know, we are a strange species to them. So there is a learning curve for managers just as much as there is for, for scientists. And that's just inevitable. The ones who are most sophisticated, they want different things from scientists. And so it's, we, we're learning together. You know, we need to meet that demand with more supply. We need to build capacity on both sides to be able to do that. I think that's a, a really important thing, especially if you think about that all environmental problems, all social problems, ultimately require actually that you deal with people. And that's a social science issue. You know, I actually believe it's probably more important for people to learn more about how to make social change than to understand fully how climate change works. Yeah. And so I heard you recently say in a, in a um, talk you gave on campus the last week, you mentioned this idea, this very yeah. idea. We need to know about how the climate works. And yeah. we've learned a lot, but that we do need to do some more deep thinking about how people work. Yeah. So can you explain a little bit what you mean by that? <laughs> and not just the social science of. I mean, I think that's those are interesting questions too, the, the study of dis, you know, decision science and so forth. But I think you're thinking of something a little bigger than that. First of all, we are at the root of the climate change problem by, by causing it. Some people don't fully accept that, but you know, that be that as it may, whether it is how we manage things, whether you know we overuse a resource or we have too many of us on a fragile reserve or whatever. I mean, it, it just, there are so many ways in which the ultimate problem actually goes back to people and what people do, why they're there, why they do what they do, why there are so many of us and those, those sorts of questions. Ultimately, to manage that and to, you know, get people to change their behavior so that their impact on the environment is, is lessened or maybe they're less at risk from some of the climate risks we're expecting. In order to do that, you need to understand what makes people tick. Why do they do what they do? Why are they here? <laughs> Why do they not, you know, recognize that the floods are coming or the droughts are coming or the, you know, heat is terrible and, and might kill them, whatever. You know, you have to understand risk perception. You have to understand how people make up their attitudes, their values, how they change over time, how that translates into behavior. And that's just at the individual level. Now throw 10 people together and make them into an organization. 
and how that works and all the institutions and norms that guide what we do. And, you know, from there it goes into policy change. You know, how does that actually happen? Do we understand the process? And I'm not talking about some theory about policy change. I'm talking about real life. What does it take to get XYZ stakeholders to align, to back up a particular policy, and then understand, is that a good policy? Who is it benefiting? Who is it, you know, getting maybe some disadvantages? Those are the kinds of things that we need to understand. And and again, let me just emphasize, I don't mean to say we don't need to understand anything about the climate or ecology or anything like that, the, the physical systems that we all depend on. Absolutely. But it's the people who use it. It's the people who abuse it. It's the people who need and need and can change it. And so that's where I feel like we need to be much more sophisticated so we can manage this much more rapidly. Yeah. And, and on that point, or at least related to that point, I think is this tendency we've had as a, as a community, let's just call ourselves part of the climate science community, the climate research community, to just increasingly say louder and louder that there's a problem, which does nothing to what you're talking about. It, it, it's a minimal part of this understanding how people hear the message or yep. how they translate that into action or how the media becomes a filter for messaging and all that kind of thing. So I think one of the big failures that I, that I know you and I think of this, I think, in similar ways is that, that we as a community have to be much more sophisticated about understanding how the work we do is works in the world. Because you can understand we could have nearly perfect knowledge of the climate and there's a, there's a better than 50% chance it wouldn't make a difference in terms of some policy decisions that are being made. Yeah, I mean, there's so much of what you just said. One of the, the key ones is that climate discourse has become a highly polarized one. You know, people hear climate or climate change or maybe human-caused climate change, and it just triggers something in their brains, and they essentially have made up their mind about it. And the rest of the information, whatever else you said, however valuable, it just didn't even go in. It just did not even land. That's really hard to imagine for some of us that this happens, but that's how it actually happens. You know, it, the point is that when people have made up their minds and we all have these cultural filters to some extent, it's very difficult to get through to them, even with the most rudimentary con uh, information. And from there, it's like, can you have a conversation about what to do? Most people that are skeptical of climate change that I know actually aren't so much skeptical about whether or not it's happening. I mean, there's some few remaining out there, but most of them actually are skeptical of it because they don't like the solution. That's a conversation we can have. You know, that's actually what a democracy ought to be doing, that we are in conversation about what are the best ways of meeting a particular goal and letting people have some freedom within that to, or at least a conversation about what are the best options and why do we think it's you know good or bad? What are the negative impacts, the benefits of doing certain things? So I think there's, you know, we need to learn a lot more about dialogue, understanding people at a psychological level, quite frankly, of why they respond to certain things and then create not just these one-way or two-way channels of yelling at each other, but actually space for dialogue, which means shut up and listen. Well, it's interesting that, that we got there because, I mean, I think uh, you mentioned Clemus as a model earlier. Uh, we talked about your sort of path that you've taken, which has been, I would say, intentional to try to affect change and bring research into decisions. And, and I agree that these are, these are viable models. Clemus is a viable model for doing effective work in our region to try to get science embedded in decision-making. Our approach and the way you approach your work is similar in the sense that it's premised on what you just said. It's premised on 
at least my approach to the way that I do the cleanest research that I do is premised on I don't have the answer necessarily. Right. I don't know. Right. Why don't we sit down and figure out what what's your real what's the question you're actually you know urban planner what's the question you're actually answering or asking? Absolutely. And, and how would we answer that? And and coming into some understanding of instead of just saying we have this model projection, this is what's going to happen. That's going to miss almost every time. So we have this approach in common, which is let's foster dialogue. Let's really understand what's going on. And then let's proceed from there. So is this a viable approach going forward? What I've learned over these 20 years is that the people who work well across the sort of science policy disconnect or, or boundary or whatever you want to call it, um, is the ones that approach it from, I'll, I'll speak as a scientist, as I'm the expert and you are not are not very good at this. But the ones who approach this from, I'm an expert in this field and you're an expert in your field, which is a you know form of respect and, and mutuality and, and equality, they tend to do a lot better. I think this is something we can very easily teach. And I think that requires some rethinking of how we portray or talk about the science boundary uh, in our, in our connection with, with practitioners. So I think there's there's a lot of things we can do. What what gives me a little bit of a heartache is that we talked about the acceleration of climate change and how we need to, you know, meet the demand that is very rapidly growing. And what we're talking about, this sitting together, dialogue, listening, you know, figuring it out together, on some level is it's pretty slow. It takes time. When you are under pressure, sitting down to have a coffee and chat doesn't sound like exactly the kind of model that we need to adopt. But I think what's, what we need to understand, again, and this is making use of social science knowledge about how innovation spreads and how change happens, is that you do the slow work with a few people, then you have great capacity both in the scientific community with the practitioner community in that project and they then teach their partners their colleagues their colleagues in other cities in other places wherever they are in other departments in other agencies let them be the teachers to each other about this and that's what i've learned over time people actually it's the probably the, the number one question i get from practitioners to me which is so what do other people do? People like me, you know, it's actually we have that little phrase, PLUs, people like us. <laughs> people want to know what people in the exact same situation, the type of job or whatever, what they do. And so they want to learn much rather from their city planner over in the next town than from you as the expert. Um, I love this Johnny Appleseed thing that you just conjured there. That's interesting. <laughs> I mean, that makes a lot of sense to me. And it's been some similar to my experience as well, which is that there's a lot more, it's more scalable. Um, but the fact that it's also, it, it meshes with human desire. People want to learn that way. You know, and they build their own <clears throat> networks. I yeah. mean, we have the Urban Sustainability Directors Network, you know, which is a highly effective network in spreading the learning across people who are all like them. So, you know, you infuse that, your expertise at sort of a high capacity point, and then you let the network do the work. I agree. And, and what's interesting, though, is we're getting a more sophisticated sort of demand function. We're getting questions, engagement from from uh, the sort of decision-making side to us, the science side, that is much more sophisticated in terms of the issues that we're working on. They know a lot more because this has been propagating this way. Right. So it's on us now because we're not, we're still not, you know, institutionally, I think universities are still very hidebound in many ways. Uh, we don't adapt particularly well to changing environments. And so it's on us. And I think you're right about training us as much as training them. I think 
Now a lot of the work is on our side. We have to fix our own house a little bit so that we're being more sensible and able to respond to these these sort of this information pull in a way that we have not been great at. I think we also need to be aware that of the fact that we're actually not the most important information source yeah, to most practitioners. Um, and so, you know, I have a, a pet peeve and I get to say this because um, I'm in that, that same category of, of uh, professionals, which is that local communities, when they do a general plan update, when they do, you know, a hazard mitigation plan update, whatever, they put out a call for proposals. And who comes to answer that? Not academics, mind you. It is consultants. And what I've seen over the last few years is that many consultants basically say that they are helping people with adaptation, but their level of sophistication is, oh, let's just say all but uh, not at the highest level. Let me give you an example. If you were to build a bridge in your town, you would hire an engineer to design it and to figure it out, right? And you would make sure that they have all their engineering certification letters behind their names before you hired them. Well, right now, we are all ready to hire people to tell us about you know, how to strategize and how to navigate a very uncertain future. And we ask people to do it who have none such behind their names. I find that is almost bordering on irresponsible behavior. And a little terrifying. Uh, terrifying would be the word. <laughs> I think one of the very important things that we can do, and in fact, I've been trying to think about that and, and trying to approach people about this in California, is to, can we not set up a certification program, professional certification program, that the people who actually give the advice to local governments, who make those plans, who come up with ideas for them, that they actually are at a much higher level of sophistication. And, you know, we, we can't do it one by one with every city, with every county. It's just not possible. But they're already out there. They're already getting those jobs. We need to raise their level of sophistication so that we actually can be sure that whatever these communities get is better for their you know population for the community and that would work in this model the existing model in the sense that universities could be they should be partners yes exactly yes. they could be facilitating some level of training of this and certification yeah. all that stuff just like we do with engineers yeah. architects i mean there are important jobs in society that require warranted knowledge right you and have to believe that you know what you're talking about absolutely and i think it's working with you know the society for civil engineers it's working with the american planning association with the american Profe uh, society for health professionals so there's a lot of different entry points and partnerships that need to be you know worked on so sometimes it's not just a one-on-one -on -one work between one scientist and one practitioner sometimes we have to switch with what we know and having this perspective on the situation and work at much higher levels and you know this is something that a state or maybe a nation uh, would address this sort of issue of having certification standards, right. um, that sort of thing. And those of us who understand something about that interaction and what the work is like for for planners or managers, whatever, you know, we need to be at the table to help to, to shape that curriculum and to maintain it and maybe to be partners in teaching uh, the classes because there will be a lot of them who will come and need Certification. <laughs> yeah, and I, and I agree that there, I do think that we're seeing more as a university, you know, working at a university um, and seeing grad students and, and to some extent undergraduate students. I think you're absolutely right that there's a there's already a constituency building of people who are going to be those people. Yep. Um, and so it's really just a matter of putting all these pieces together. So, so this leads really nicely to a segue. We both work on these issues that are kind of dismal 
they can be framed in a way that's just depressing. It's hard to look at the 21st century and not see pretty massive change coming. But I don't perceive what I work on as a skies falling phenomenon. I don't think the world is coming to an end. I think there's lots of great things that are happening that we can do. Problems are problems. We always have them. So we both get up and come to work every day. So what is it that, that, that keeps you motivated and that, that you're optimistic about? I mean, you see a lot of stuff that some of us don't get to see in terms of what communities, specifically you work a lot in California where you live, um, which is pretty progressive on these issues. So you get to see a lot of stuff happening. So what, what are some of the things that you see that you feel like, well, that's, that's a good, at least a move in the right direction? Yeah, that's a great uh question and big challenge. You know, I've spent a considerable amount of my time actually uh, studying hope theory. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Believe it or not, there are people who have actually studied why do we have hope and optimism and, you know, what keeps us going. And I have a pretty big library by now about that. But can I just interject? The reason uh, that you have studied that partially answers my question. But anyway, In in no small part because people ask me the question all the time, what can they do to, or, you know, or I meet people who are in despair or who are numb or who are in denial. And, you know, I actually believe that many of us are in denial because it's almost impossible to hold the possibility of very drastic, very difficult uh, changes coming and not knowing what to do about it. It's one thing when you get a whatever, a bad diagnosis from a doctor or something, but the doctor then tells you, you know, here's the plan and there's a very good chance we can heal this or here's, you know, whatever, here's the possible outcomes that are quite positive. Here's what we're going to do. You know, you can, I mean, it's hard, but you can deal with that and you're, you know, probably willing to sign up for that sort of treatment plan. But most people don't know how to create social change, how to make a difference. And that's, that's what people, I mean, people look at, politics, you know, they look at Washington, they see a stalemate, they maybe see the polarization in the media debate, and they're like, okay, and you want me to recycle? You got to be kidding. <laughs> I mean, it's just, you know, that's just not going to do the trick, right? And I might, I think that makes perfect sense. So a lot of why I've studied it and why I wanted to understand it um, was not just for my own, uh, you know, psychological sanity, <laughs> whatever, but because I wanted to have an answer that is more useful to people. Now, what gets me up in the morning is the fact that, you know, we haven't been doing the best. We have not used the best tools. We have not done all we could. We have not applied our knowledge. And I mean, that just gives me plenty to do, right? That gives me all the reason of advising people and how they could do it better, giving people more tools of how they could communicate better, how they make better connections with with policy, how to maybe think differently about adaptation. Interestingly enough, in my own work, I've spent a lot of time thinking about how uncertainty and barriers and whatever get in the way of doing something. While these days I'm working on adaptation success. How would we define that? People jump on that far more easily. So I've, I've learned for one thing, you know, I need to frame my, my, my interests a little bit more in ways that people want to actually hear, hear it. <laughs> I completely agree with that. That works for me too. I agree that, that if makes you, a huge difference. It does make a huge difference. It's yeah. like we're working on a solution, not trying to define the yeah. problem is a better uh, way for us sometimes. And, and I want to say, I am really not, this might be my uh, German heritage, I'm not uh, in for Pollyanna, you know, sort of ways of thinking. It's just not my way. Um, constitutionally, <laughs> I'm probably more pessimistic about things. But what gives me hope and what, what gets me up is the people that I work with. And I think that's what actually is going to get us through coming crises. 
Um, and so helping people do that effectively and seeing amazing people doing amazing work, that's where the hope is for me. That's an awesome answer. Well, I think we're going to leave it there. Okay. Thanks for your time today, Susie. That's been great. That was fun. Yeah, thanks. Thanks.